questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. What you believe to be true, is it really true? Or have you just accepted it at face value because it's what you were taught and have never looked any further into it? There is a wealth of evidence back in the idea that giants were once a part of this world, found in photographs, mythological stories, religious records, archaeological finds, and architectural structures. Tonight's special guest will add a valuable piece to this portfolio of proof. Throughout history, our comprehension of the physical world has undergone numerous modifications. It's natural to disregard ideas that seem absurd with a casual gesture, but it's something altogether different to assess the objective world, free from any pre-established beliefs. Thousands of years ago, there were people who were much larger than the average human today. These giants had a significant influence on the cultures of the time. Legends described them as powerful, wise, and sometimes even immortal. They were regarded as heroes, gods, and demigods, depending on the culture. Archaeological evidence of their existence can still be found all around the world. From the ruins of ancient temples and cities to the artifacts that have been unearthed, there are numerous stories of these giants in ancient texts and myths, and they were often seen as symbols of strength and power. In some cases, it is even believed that these giants may have been the source of some of the ancient civilization's most advanced technologies. There are also accounts of the giants interacting with humans, either as friends or enemies. As technology and science continue to advance, more evidence of the existence of these giants is being discovered. We can now look back at the past and more accurately assess the impact that these giants had on the cultures of the time. In many cases, it can be seen that the giants played a role in shaping the world that we know today, from the construction of monuments to the introduction of new technologies. There is even the possibility that these giants may have been the originators of modern-day ethnic customs. The idea of giant beings existing in the past may seem outlandish and absurd, but it is important to objectively evaluate the evidence that exists in its support. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time listening, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy. Get a 15-day free trial of FLFE today. We also have rebounders, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Veritas and Sanitas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Mike Wilkerson has always had an act for asking unconventional questions. As a teen computer hobbyist, turned hacker in the early 80s, his thirst for knowledge led to wild adventures with some of the top hackers in the nation. But in 1985, the fun ended in a brief incarceration after being caught for his infiltration of computer servers at Microsoft and three other Seattle area companies. Though he has walked the straight and narrow since then, Mike's propensity towards questioning the unquestionables has never waned. In the decades that followed, he morphed from a mischievous hacker to a benevolent backcracker. For over a decade now, Mike has lived and worked as a chiropractor on the Costa Blanca in Spain, where his mission is to improve the health of the world one spine and mind at a time. Mike is a father of two and an avid hiker, health crusader, artist, budding author, and mapper of rabbit holes. He is also a purveyor of the nascent academic disciplines of biogeology and titanology. As a part-time independent researcher, Mike has focused primarily on alternative history, non-standard cosmologies, catastrophism, and rapid petrification. He considers himself a cross-disciplinary field researcher. His YouTube channel is Stellium7, S-T-E-L-L-I-U-M-7, 
And directly from Costa Blanca, Alicante, Spain, I would like to welcome, for the first time on Veritas, Mike Wilkerson. Hello, Mike, and welcome. How are you? Hi, I'm Al. I'm doing great. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. My pleasure. And by the way, I, I want to say thank you to all of you guests who come on this program. It's very late where you are and you're still up, but you told me that you still have a lot of energy. So I'm looking forward to this. So I don't need to remind our audience that uh, we must open our minds to what we're going to discuss tonight, folks. And I say this because our education or indoctrination is what is responsible or for closing our minds. You have two degrees, Mike, and you are very familiar with the scientific method and it's okay to be skeptical, but I would encourage that folks suspend your judgment and consider the possibilities. For, for those people who don't know who you are, I've already read your bio. You had a, a stint with law enforcement many years ago as a hacker. Can you give us that part of your, of your story and then how you get into what you are doing now? Yeah, briefly, uh, as a young teen, I got into computers. It was the very beginning of personal computing and, uh, telecommunications was, you know, it was all through the telephone and you put your handset on a, on a little acoustic coupler later on, you could plug it into the wall, but it was, uh, it wasn't very sophisticated like it is now, but I, I just had a, a love for technology and, and all the innovation that was taking place. And, and, uh, my curiosity got me into trouble because I was looking for all sorts of subversive information after a while and, and, uh, wanted to understand the inner workings of how the telephone system worked and, uh, whatever else I could, uh, I could learn. What year was this, Mike? Uh, the year that I was caught was 1985, and uh, the court case took about a year, and uh, it uh, it ended in 86, and I was convicted of uh, four counts of illegal computer trespass in the state of Washington. I was living in uh, in in Kirkland at the time, close to close to Seattle, and um, there were four different companies that I was tried with for for infiltrating and that was Microsoft, a subsidiary of Boeing, Kenworth Trucking and um, another called Resources Conservation Company. Oh, uh, Sunstrand as well. <laughs> it's interesting you said so, 1985 because that's when I had my first computers, Commodore 64 and 128 and I used to contact so many BBS, uh, you probably remember that, Bolivian boards and accessing yep. all the conspiracies and I was giving telephone numbers to call and try to get into certain things that I'm not going to discuss here because I don't want anybody to be looking at that. But that started me too. I, I, I never was, you know, oh, I didn't go through what you went through. But I remember downloading all this stuff at night with a modem that had to be connected to, you know, you get the phone and put it on top of the modem. And I remember I had a dog at the time and if the dog barked, the whole communication would break and all those things would break and would have to call again. You probably remember those times. Definitely. Yeah, it was, it was fun. Uh, similar to what I'm doing now, really. It, we, we were hacking the telephone system in different ways. There were all kinds of different techniques and devices that had been developed to, to uh, be able to make free calls and yeah. conference calls. And uh, so so long before there were forums and and the kinds of things that people are uh engaging with now we were uh all staying up all night long as teens talking to each other across the nation and and sharing uh tips and and uh different techniques for for having fun so. yeah i remember friends uh calling them calling each other worldwide because they would tap into the phone companies at night and uh would try to extract the passwords, but I'm not going to get into that right now. We're going to do a show in the future. Why don't you have a book that you're working on about your history and all the good things that you're doing now? Uh, hackers from heaven is one thing that's happening out there where they're tracking missing children. So you have transmuted that into good, and I'm so glad to hear. But tonight we're here for a different reason. For the past, I would say, two, three years, I've been provided so much information, Mike, that when I look at things that before I, I didn't look at, for example, architecture, before I would say these are very ornate, very nice buildings, but they don't seem to fit in here. And that's one thing that everyone can recognize. But then you start looking at what now, 
when I go through the United States countryside and I see that these big stumps, what they look like stumps, and then you see mountains, when you start looking at them in a different way, it's almost like somebody's sleeping there. And you see the eyes, you see the nose, you see the facial expression. But you have taken this to the next level. Tell me how you got into this research now. Well, it was really a, a conglomeration of a whole bunch of different threads that I'd been looking at. Uh, one of them was just alternative cosmologies in general and looking at how much of what we're told about the universe and, and where we live is is accurate. And uh, this ties into everything because it ties into the age of, of the world that we're in. This ties into geology, uh, all sorts of different uh, subjects with regards. Um, sorry, lost lost my train of thought there. A little nervous, uh, to be honest. Um, yeah, uh, it was it was looking at geology, looking at something called mud fossils, which was a, a YouTube channel that I ran across where the Roger Spur was talking about the idea that petrification could happen a lot faster than than we ever realized. And um, that was that was a new idea for me because I I'd studied uh, different subjects in, in high school and again in college and never really looked at the mountains and the rocks with with uh, new eyes, so to speak, because I was never particularly interested. I was always interested in the future. I was interested in what was what was coming. And I, I just thought we're we're at the pinnacle of evolution and the world is is, you know, everything's pointing towards the future. I was a big lover of sci fi, Star Wars and Star Trek and all these kinds of shows as a kid. And so looking at the past or looking at rocks or archaeology or any of these kinds of subjects, it was really just about the most boring thing that I could imagine. And, uh, and so about four years ago, coming across the idea of mud fossils, watching another video uh, by a channel called Wakey Wakey, where he was digging into different ways in which the, the, the narratives that had to do with geology things like our, uh, the different systems that were used for dating and determining how old things were, that maybe not all of that science was truly settled as we're taught and, uh, and that things might not be uh, as, as old as we were taught because they're often talking in, in timelines that have to do with hundreds of millions of years, talk about the Earth being over 4 billion years old and that they can see back to the beginning of time and that the universe is 16 billion years old. All of these kinds of things I just took for granted as true because I figured, you know, we've we've been to the moon and we've been to space and and uh, and so you know it's it's moving forward and we've got to figure out how to get off this rock before we get hit by a rock, you know that sort of thing, and uh, so I also I have a very uh, unusual best friend. His his name is Alex Michael. He's also known as a conspiracy music guru. No, oh, he's a Some friend too. The, yeah. So, some know him as the flat earth man. Yeah. And, um, so we've known each other now for about five years and he was the one who first, uh, hit me with the idea that the earth might not be what I was taught to believe it was. And so we had lots of debates going back and forth and I tried to shoot down his ideas one by one, but, um, he countered with a whole lot of very empirical factual based information that had to do with different scientific experiments. And, and I was like, well, what about, you know, our moon landings? And what about all the satellites floating around up there? And what about the ISS? And, you know, there's live streams from the ISS and there's satellites floating in space that we use with our phones. And so I thought he was absolutely nuts. And up until he brought that up, I thought he was an incredibly intelligent guy. And we had been kind of checking off the the different rabbit holes we'd been down one by one and, and uh, you know, really connected well. And then he brought that up and I thought, hmm, I need to really uh, rethink this guy because if he's willing to believe something that absurd, then he's willing to believe absolutely everything. And if you believe absolutely everything, then you believe nothing. And um so it took a while before I actually went and tried to uh, research things and debunk, debunk it. But um, now my my conception of 
cosmology of the worlds is is a lot different. I don't think we're on a a flat disk that's floating out in space. I think it's something far more complex than that. I don't know what it is. Uh, I think we're in in some kind of a realm, in a system, uh, probably in, enclosed. And so when you start to ponder those kinds of ideas, and being a, I'm a chiropractor by trade, and so being being a chiropractor, I'm, I'm aware of the different ways in which um, the, the stories that we're told about our reality are not always matching reality. And, uh, and there's a lot of funny business when it comes to what we're, what we're taught to believe. So as you know, well, on this channel, you're, <laughs> you've been studying the funny business for over a decade. So, by the way, yeah. there's nothing to be nervous about. I mean, you're talking to a friend really, and we are very open-minded here. We discuss every topic and I'm not here to, to debunk anyone. And, you know, I, I watched all your videos, as I mentioned before we began at this morning, and I appreciate your research. But let me just say what I, in different words, what I said earlier on, for years now, Mike, I, I've been observing my surroundings with new eyes. Architecture, to me, is the most obvious, since it's man-made buildings that today's architectures, you know, architects claim they can't replicate due to lack of funding. Artisans are not around to do it. They say that it's out of style, but yet they were erected in a time with a fraction of our economic prowess. Equipment, uh, you know, or so-called technological advances, we didn't have any of that. You know, horse and buggies. I say so-called because when you compare these old buildings, you know, built with material that hardened with time, unlike today's, they were so ornate and incredibly pleasing to the eye. We know something changed, but there's another part of this spectrum into all these unknowns that once you start paying attention, you can't ignore. And I'm referring again to what seems to be petrified trees, petrified animals. And yes, the one aspect the Smithsonian and history books do not mention. And if they do, they do it in the forms of in the form of legends. I'm referring to giants or titans. It literally mm. challenges the very foundations of geology, Mike. Yeah, it, it turns it on its head, and uh, it doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of truth in geology. And obviously, there's all kinds of different experimentation that's that's done, and instruments that can be used to to look at things in different ways. So, you know, it's not that you would throw all all of that out if uh, if the kinds of things that I've been talking about are true, or or other channels that have uh, done investigations into things like you mentioned the giant trees, or um, you know, just th this idea of of rapid petrification, instant petrification, uh, mud fossils. These are these are all very fascinating ideas, but all of them uh, would require a complete rewrite of many of the ologies. Because as soon as you start to tug at the threads of one of the ologies, it overlaps and and dovetails with other other disciplines. So you've got to start to examine those as well. It's a very exciting time because there's so much that's being uncovered and rediscovered and, and things that we thought and that were, were truths and took for granted uh, are, we're finding out are, are not necessarily true at all. By the way, Roger Spur was in this program not too long ago, maybe a year or two, I believe, but he did tell hmm. me, and I'll say this on the air, he did tell me before we began, uh, I wanted only to discuss Mud Flood, but he said, please do not ask me about Flat Earth. I don't go there. I don't believe in it. And I respect his, his his decision and his position. I discuss both parts. I discuss the yeah. the globe and I discuss the flat earth. I mean, it's up to the listeners. I am a journalist. I get out of the way. And I've, I've posted pictures here. I have a home in Mexico on the beach there. And I posted pictures of a, a landmass 89 miles away that I can see perfectly clear in the afternoons, only in the afternoons. And I've talked to captains and boats and I say, can you look over there? Can you tell me what that is? And, oh, that's that's uh, Baja, California. And I say, well, how many miles away? Well, that's about 90 miles away from here. How is it possible yeah. that we can see from top to bottom? And it's always the deer in the headlights stare. It's like, why are you asking me this? Are you saying that the, that the earth is flat? And I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying science says that there's a formula that tells you that anything that goes beyond the horizon should fall X number of feet. And we can perfectly see from top to bottom. We can even see lights at night. Why? And the same thing has happened in, in you know, in Spain, in, in, in Michigan, I believe. They can see the, the Chicago skyline. So these are questions that people don't answer. And what does 
a meteorologist say, oh, that's a mirage? You've probably heard that before. Yeah, absolutely. There's, yeah, well, I mean, we're taught boats go over the horizon in school, and that that's easily proven false nowadays by modern cameras, cameras because yeah. the zooms are so powerful that you can, you can uh, zoom out so far that you can't even see objects on the horizon and then zoom in and, and, and see a boat and, and not just see part of the boat, but see the bottom of the boat, see the wake of the boat from distances. And you mentioned Baja, California. There's actually a video that I saw by a channel called J Tolan media and this man is a very, very high level scientist. I think he works in the military industrial complex. And he's he's like he got onto the flat earth subject and he's like, well, I'm going to test it, you know, and he's got these incredibly high power lenses. And he went up into an airplane with infrared technology and infrared cuts through the atmospheric occlusion. So you see incredibly far. And, and what you see is what's heated up by the by the, the sunlight. So it's, you know, it, it, it's amazing. Well, he was flying over Texas and uh, pointing the camera towards Baja. Yep. And he could see the entire length of Baja. He could see the, the water uh, between Texas and Baja and the water behind and the horizon far beyond that. Well, he was looking at, you know, and, and this is calculating for his altitude, obviously, but he was looking at over a distance of 500 miles and at that distance and his viewing altitude, I believe that there should have been about 56,000 feet that should have been obscured behind the curve. So that would be like stacking two Mount Everests on top of each other and only seeing the tip of the second Everest. And that's just completely impossible on a ball the size they tell us. And that's that's one of the, the shorter observations that he's made. He's he's made observations looking from basically the same location, like over Texas, all the way across to the far end of the Hudson Bay, which is probably around between a thousand and twelve hundred miles. So those are the kinds of things that cause me to go, what you know, and and then uh, also being here um, in Spain. Off the coast is the island of Ibiza for me, yeah. which is ni 90 kilometers in distance. And my one of my absolute favorite subjects in, in high school was geology. Uh, I mean, sorry, uh, geo uh, geometry. <laughs> geometry, uh, you know, calculating curvature and angles and all these kinds of things. I absolutely love that as a, as a kid in school. And so I just got got busy and, and started doing the math and uh, realized that there was about 200 meters of that island that should be missing at that distance. And I took a picture with my phone on the day that I was looking at this. It was a winter's day, very clear uh, air, and I could see the entire island. So yeah, it, it, it and, and that also opens up the door for the possibility that maybe this realm is a lot bigger than we realize. And if it's, if it's bigger, then, you know, that, that, uh, that means that, well, first of all, much of what we've been taught about our reality is, is, is a lie. Second of all, the, the, the mythology may very well be our, our real past, our real history. Absolutely. And I recently found out that when they were making the movie King Kong in the 1970s, the producers wanted a real size animatronic Kong but the problem was that it was so large that the metal support system, almost like a spinal cord, the, the whole skeletal part metal collapsed due to its weight. So this begs the question, if these large living beings existed, these titans, these giants, did our environment change? Atmospheric pressure, levels of oxygen, nitrogen, gravity. Let's unveil the titans as we have discovered, yeah. Mike. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, it, they couldn't, in the model we're given, they couldn't have existed. And I hear that all the time from people on the channel. They're talking about, um, I can't remember what it's called, the, the, um, the inverse square law. That's for light. It's something that has to do with, with the, the, the size of something eventually reaching a size where it couldn't possibly support its own weight because it would crush under, under the, the pull of gravity. And, um, uh, yeah, I, I think that that uh, that if if the world is is very different from from what we think, then 
it's very likely that we had a much greater atmospheric pressure because it's been shown with scientific experiments that you can create gigantism in like fruits and vegetables and plants if you put them in a pressurized room and you increase the oxygen content. So, I mean, we already know in the, in the fossil record that, that, that things were much, much larger in the past. That's, that's even in the mainstream narrative. So, um, you know, how big were things? That's the question. <laughs> You don't have an elephant in the room, but you have a possible elephant that you can see from your backyard in, it's the Montgo Mountain. When did you realize that maybe, maybe it was a petrified elephant? Well, after seeing some videos by, by Roger, another guy named uh, Alan from a, a channel that no longer exists called uh, Flat Earth Nation, he's now got one called Mud Flood Was Armageddon. Uh, those guys... They kind of got me looking at rocks differently, and then Roger was on about this uh, giant uh, dragon in the the Sahara Desert that he was talking about regularly. And what fascinated me was not just the detail of the anatomy that he was showing, uh, but also that that there was actual uh, records or not records, but discussion of a great battle between the Leviathan and the behemoth that, that occurred in that part of the world that was written about by, I, I, I always say Plato, I think it was, uh, Platonius or something. I can't remember the name of the, the writer. I've never read the text myself, but there's a lot of other texts like, uh, in the Bible itself, they talk about They talk about the giants. The titans are, are mentioned in the apocryphal texts like the Book of Enoch and the Book of Jasher. And in fact, the Book of Enoch even gives um, a measurement. It describes it as being 3,000 L's. And if you if you uh, calculate that in, in the current um, you know measurements, that would be roughly a mile high. And that's about the size of Mont Go. It's, it's 753 meters at its highest point, which would be the top of the head. And it's about three miles in length. This is very small compared to what Roger was talking about. And when I saw his videos on the, on the dragon, I was like, well, okay, it's kind of interesting. And I think it's interesting that they talked about it in, in some of the myths and the old texts. Um, but I, I wasn't considering Mont Go at all. It wasn't until I saw a video by Dre Dreamers, where he started to tie some of these different threads together. And, I, and I'd been looking at this mountain for a long time because it looks very much like an elephant. It's got a head. It's even got a, an eye socket right exactly where the, the, the cave should be. And, and I'd been up at that cave many times, and it's a very unusual cave. So I, I thought, no, it couldn't, couldn't, be <laughs> it couldn't, couldn't be true that that, that was once an elephant. It's, it's a silly idea. Uh, so the first thing I did is I got on Google Earth because I knew that on Google Earth I could I could tilt it in 3D mode and I could kind of do like a, a, an aerial view and look at this thing in more detail. I'd hiked to the top of it probably 10 different times by that point and many times to the eye. I'm an avid hiker and I love I love it. And I've always walked around this mountain thinking these stones are so bizarre. How did these form? Because I knew the basics of of what they tell us about what what they call petrogenesis, which is how the rocks are formed. And they they tell us that there are basically three different kinds of rock. You have igneous, metamorphic and sedimentary. And igneous would be your your lava rock you know that's you can actually witness that being created it comes out of the volcano so that's not a that's not a myth it's it's not a theory you can actually watch it happening and then metamorphic well i'll, I'll mention sedimentary first and then go to metamor metamorphic but sedimentary uh stone are all these layers that they used when they're finding fossils and the, and when they're you know talking about the dating and those layers are laid down, we're told, over millions of years of time as, as different uh, plant and animal life die and then are compressed under the seafloor. And then eventually that hardens. And, and the harder it gets and the further down it gets and the hotter it gets, that can start to metamorphosize, metamorphosize morph into, into what they call metamorphic stone, which is a blend of lots of different things. So those three different types of stone are... are how they explain everything in geology. And, and so 
then tectonic activity will cause plates to collide and that creates the mountains and then the mountains break off into smaller and smaller pieces and then those roll around and erode as a result of water and wind and and uh you know um mineral erosion so that's the the basic story of petrogenesis how all the different stones are formed and and uh it obviously gets incredibly complex from that point uh, because there's hundreds and hundreds of different kinds of minerals and stones. But there's a bunch of them here that just baffled me because it made no sense that there were channels going through them. It looked like it looked like a block of Swiss cheese, but not just holes going in. The holes had holes, and those were going in different directions. So I'm looking at it thinking, if this is caused by water erosion, is the water like making a 90-degree turn and, and, and eroding off to the sides of this channel? Why, why would this happen in this way? It just didn't make sense to me. And, and uh, it didn't, the, the penny on that didn't drop until, until much later. But the first thing I started doing with the mountain because I took a step back from it. I mean, it might sound like I'm a total wacko. I'm talking about flat earth. I'm talking about, you know, titans and, and whatnot. But I do come from an academic background. I have a bachelor's in, in, in the classics, basically, Italian uh, cultural studies. I studied abroad in Italy. That was how I originally ended up in, in Europe. And I've been in Europe since 97. Um, and, and so... I've I've done a lot of studying over the years. Then I went on to to study chiropractic. That was another five years of of college. And for my master's in chiropractic, I did a, a massive research project that involved a fifty page uh, uh, fifty page research paper with five pages of 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 uh, resources for this for this paper. So. I, I'm familiar with the scientific method. I'm familiar <laughs> with how you go about conducting proper research. And so that was what I, I said. I, I took a step back and I said, if I'm going to look into this, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go any further. I, I'm going to, I'm going to eliminate things like pareidolia right off the bat, which is when you look at something that looks like something and you think it's something like if you're looking at a cloud or you look at a tree and you see a face and you know, that's, that's, I was well aware of that long before I got in this, that, uh, pareidolia is a, is a real thing and people can see things and think that they, they are something that they're not. And then there's another concept called apophania, which is similar to pareidolia, except it's it's has to do with pattern recognition, where you think that you're seeing a reoccurring pattern, but there's actually no connection between between the things that you think are connected. And and so in order to to not fall victim to pareidolia and apophania, I decided to um, create a laundry list of of different things that I would expect to find if there was any truth to it. But before I did that, I was I was looking at the mountain on on Google Earth and looking at it from lots of different angles. And after about an hour or two, uh, that first evening of looking at it, I'd already found about ten different macro anatomical features. There was the the head was shaped properly. There were cutouts on both sides where the the head would meet the shoulder, the neck. There was, the eye was placed properly. Um, there was a, a, a deep crevice between where the legs would be. I could make out the faint uh, remains of ribs and and the spinal. You know, the spine was was clearly there, running along the length of the the mountain. So already that was that was ten. And and I've played a lot of back backgammon in my life. I've uh, you know I, I love games. I love looking at the odds of of things happening. And and already the odds were like what? That's bizarre because if it's pareidolia, sure you can see it from a particular angle. The shadows can fall just right, and you can you can uh, you know fool yourself into believing it's a, a face of a of a giant person or a creature, but. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna start making claims about something, you better have a preponderance of evidence in place before you before you come out with it. Otherwise, people are gonna think you're nuts. So, the the next thing I did is is uh, got out the anatomy books. I started looking online at 3D anatomy and looking at skulls because I remembered from my studies that that even though skulls change dramatically from creature to creature, the the basic makeup of them is the same. The the the, the different bones that go into to creating a skull and specifically the eye socket is made up of seven different bones that all meet in these lines 
forming the, the, the eye cavity. And those lines are known as, as sutures. And, and so I, I had this list of different things that I would expect to find if there was any, anything to it. And, and I took that list with me and I went up and, and the, the second video that I made was all about the eye of Montgo and the different findings that I, that I, that I discovered that day. And a lot more findings came after that. I'm going to get back to Mongo in a moment, but you said you mentioned a YouTube channel, Mudflood Was Armageddon. I haven't checked it out yet, but just that name, Mudflood Was Armageddon. We have the technology, and again, you don't have to believe anything we're saying here tonight, folks. You can do your own research. This is just merely my opinion, but I believe we have the technology to manipulate the weather, to create droughts, to create hurricanes, storms, steer, steer those hurricanes, create earthquakes, and I wouldn't be surprised if we could trigger volcanoes. And if you can trigger volcanoes, do you think that a lot of these mud floods that we've had in the past, maybe not, not so distant? Because after watching your videos, I see this individual talking about Mount St. Helens in, in 1980. And he mentioned that this side of the mountain was petrified, not in a million years, not in a thousand, not in hundred days, months or days, in three hours. So imagine what kind of force yeah. could do that. Yeah, and also the that clip that you're referring to um, that that's in it's in the Petrified Titans and Organs Part Two video, I believe that I have. It might be Part One, but I think it's Part Two. That uh, or no, I, I, the other way around, Part One. That geologist uh, he really kind of shook uh, some of the, the foundations of, of geology with, with his research because there were slurry flows from that eruption that, that caused, you know, the, the, the lahars, the volcanic ash mix, mixed with water because of the, the snow that was on the, on the mountain at the time that erupted. All of that just created this, this massive flow. And, and within just a, a few hours, it formed these sedimentary, quote-unquote, sedimentary layers. We would call them sedimentary layers with micro layering that would normally take thousands of years to to form based on the mainstream narrative so that that gets into this question of like well if you're looking at fossils and you're looking at different layers where whether it's the cambrian or the pleistocene or, or whatever whatever the layer is and you're determining the age of something based on the layer how can you really know that that's that's what's happening it's kind of circular reasoning because they have they, they, they look at the fossils and they, they, they know the age of the fossils, but then the, the age is tied to the layer that it's in. So, yeah, Mount St. Helens was very interesting. But volcanoes in and of themselves are, are a very fascinating subject. And there's a lot of alternative researchers, who I, uh, two in particular that I know, that uh, are leaning towards the idea that, that volcanoes themselves might be ancient technologies. So there might be something massive that's buried uh, below the ground and periodically it, you know, it sh raises its ugly head. Uh, volcanoes are, are fascinating. Volcano lava tubes are, are bizarre. It's hard to imagine how they form. Yeah. I have a lot more questions than I do have answers. And, and I, from my very first video, I, I made it clear to people, look, I'm not, I'm not an expert in any of this stuff. I'm not a geologist. I'm not a anthropologist. I, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm more of a, a selective sifter, a dot connector. I, I, I take a syncretic approach to things and I, and I've always been fascinated in, in where the overlaps are. And, um, you know, when it comes to, so many of these different subjects, which to, to somebody who's, you know, entrenched in, in mainstream thought, each one of these in and of itself sounds, sounds absurd and crazy when, when they're contemplating them and all of them together is absolutely nuts. Um, but what's odd is how well so many of these things dovetail. You, you know, they might be envisioning some crazed conspiracy theorist with a cork board and pins and lines going in different directions and red circles and, you know, gesticulating wildly. That's not how it is at all. There's there's so much stuff that lines up. And you were talking about mud floods and the architecture. There's there's the the, the phenomenon of star forts. I have a close friend who's who's mapped over 10,000 of these things all over the world on every continent. 
and the size of them is is off the charts. And so when you start looking at the narratives of of when those things were supposedly built, how long it took to build them, who built them, that's when it starts to get bizarre. And and if you've gone into, I mean, you had Jay Widener and you had Michelle Gibson on yeah. uh, very very recently, and both of them are looking into all of these things that you were talking about. And and uh, Michelle Gibson, I, I'm I'm not familiar with her re- research directly, but I've seen um, I've seen little bits and pieces here and there, and she does some some very in depth study, and you know she's talking about grid lines. And these these different things about the actual structure of of the realm that we're in, and there's a lot of evidence out there to to show that this place isn't what what we were taught at all. <laughs> Michelle, Michelle is doing an excellent job. She's a pure soul. She has no agenda other than getting to the truth. It is like you and I, the same thing. Our approach. I mean, this is why my favorite quote is. Uh, you know, I would rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. And, you know, thinking of this geologist on your video from 1980, you know, I'm just thinking that was he admonished after he came out with that? You know, he's speculating that. And science is supposed to be questioned. But today's science, Mike, to me, it's the religion that must not be questioned. Yeah, well, it's it's dogma, it's it's scientism, and and so many people are actually engaging in scientism and have no idea because what they're really doing is it's all appeal to authority, and and they they might be an expert themselves in some field, but they recognize that I'm an expert in this field, but I know nothing about that field, and so I'm not I'm not in a place to make any cat you know make any judgments or to draw any conclusions because that's not my area of expertise, and I and I disagree with that thinking because I think that an expert in one thing has a rational mind and is capable of understanding, you know, logical fallacies and, and whether a logical reasoning makes sense or, or whether, you know, a line of reasoning makes sense logically. And, and so that's, uh, you know, that, what was I, I lost the, the, the main point I was making there. We'll come back to it. That's okay. I'll ask you another question. <laughs> I'll come back. I understand it's late over there. Now, one new thing I've yeah, discovered it's, from it's about your an hour past my bed. <laughs> I know from your research is obviously the mud fossil hearts. You illustrate this very well in your videos, and you've found many of these, and you point to the overall morphology, the pericardium, the the valve structures, and everything else. These petrified hearts are they petrified inside too? Would you expect to find? soft tissue or cellular structure in a petrified heart, Mike? I've, I've broken many open and I've sliced into a number of them and I've polished them. And no, there's no soft tissue. So I wouldn't expect to be able to extract DNA uh, you, you know, from them because whatever turned them from flesh to stone is, has likely denatured the proteins of, of the DNA. So it's possible that I might be able to, to uh, someday you know, get a sample. Roger Spur has, has done it, uh, or so he claims he has three different lab reports from, uh, a supposedly reputable laboratory that, um, that are from these stone samples that, that show that it was humanoid DNA. We mentioned, uh, mud flood was Armageddon before. I I just want to add that people know Roger and they know him because he's been around for a long time. They know him as the originator of, of this idea of mud fossils and um, because he's got a larger channel and he has those those uh, lab lab reports, he's got a, a quite a big following. Uh, Alan from Flat Earth Nation, Mud Flood was Armageddon. Now he his channel was taken down at, at one point. He he had about ten or twelve thousand subs, but he's been in it just as long as as Roger has, and uh, has taken a very uh, different approach to it. And, and so I, I think it's, I think it's good to, the, to, to, to know that it's, it's not just Roger that was on the subject and many people in the past, and including all the ancients, the mythologies, you know, the, 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 the indigenous peoples talk about the lot, the, the rocks were once alive. You've got this idea of the, the transformer stones, which are these beings that can turn to stone and then turn back to, to living creatures. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of interesting stuff out there that most people would just write off as superstition, and it may not be, uh, may not be, may not be. <laughs> what kind of, before I ask you this question, you and I think we're the same age. 
And growing up, I bet you you use a magnifying glass to burn paper and do some other stuff, right? I recently saw somebody putting a large magnifying glass and basically melting stone. So if you were yep. the cultural editors or the elite and you wanted to get rid of an entire city, would they have the technology to put, let's say, a big magnifying glass over that city and essentially basically melting them away? I wouldn't discount those possibilities. But what kind of force would be required to transmute biological tissue to stone or melt stone? Yeah, that's a good question. And and I was just thinking when you when you said that, I thought of the firmament. So if there is some kind of a curved enclosure, then then there's your lensing right there, or at least a potential lensing. Um, yeah, a magnifying glass can, I think they can freeze things very quickly as well. So it works both ways, not just with heat. Um, the, the magnifying glass turning things just literally melting stone. And, and it's a, it's a fascinating idea. There, there's this idea of instant petrification is, is not a crackpot idea. There's lots of examples of things in the, in the geological record that are petrified that by, by all intents and purposes shouldn't be based on what we've been taught, like soft tissue, for example, these heart stones that I'm finding that shouldn't exist in, in mainstream geology. And it was a real puzzling for me because why would I find these things outside of the body? We can get, get to that later. But there, there's a guy named Girolamo Sagato who knew how to petrify flesh in Italy in the 1800s. His secret died with him. There was another guy named Bruni. There are museums that house their works to this day. There's uh, lots of examples, like, for example, Mother Shipton's Cave in, in the UK has very high mineral content waters that can lead to rapid petrification. People go and, and, and bring little trinkets and hang them from ropes, and then the water drips down the ropes and surrounds these things and encases them in, in, in crystal, and then eventually turns them to stone. There's a lake called Lake Natron. I'm not sure where it is. I think it's near the Black Sea, if I recall. But that that lake has such high mineral content waters that, that something similar happens. You've got the mud fossil idea where things are encased in mud. And, and that's basically if you took a hunk of flesh and you surrounded it in mud, it wouldn't decay. And the reason is that the, the larvae and the bacteria that would normally eat away at the flesh can't thrive in that kind of an environment. So the, the lump of flesh would just sit there for a very, very long time. And, and eventually all of the water and the, the gas that's inside of the, the flesh would work its way out and the minerals that are in the surrounding mud would work their way in. That process is called paramineralization. And that is the mainstream explanation for how we get things like the petrified trees through paramineralization. It's that exchange of the materials. But in the mainstream, they're telling us that it happens over hundreds of millions of years of time. In Roger's model, it happens anywhere from six months to a couple of years. It, it all depends on the conditions. And, and it's going to be it, it, the results are going to be different every time in every situation because it depends on what you're starting with as a material that's going to be hardened and what the surrounding, uh, what do you call it, um, substrate is that, that that material finds itself in. So, so you've got the mud fossil idea, which I was initially fond of. It didn't make any sense to me when it came to the mountain, though, because I couldn't imagine how the ground could rise up 800 meters to cover this mountain and stay there long enough for it to turn to stone. So pretty early on, I was, I was already drawing the conclusion that mud fossil theory wasn't sufficient to, to explain the things that I was finding. And especially, tr especially so when I, when I got to the heart stones, because uh, it didn't make any sense at all. I could understand it if you were finding petrified bodies or portions of bodies and maybe a heart contained within that. But to find organs by themselves, I, I couldn't understand it. But, but the initial the, the reason I got on the subject initially was because I was so frustrated with what I was seeing in the mud fossil community because there were so many people showing rocks and they were making these grand claims about what that rock was and they were 100% certain that it was, a, it was a this or it was a that. And, and there were no, there, you know, other than Roger's three tests, there was, there was no real testing that was being done. And a lot of people were looking at pictures of mountains and doing the same thing. So that, that ties into pareidolia. Just because something looks like something doesn't mean it is. But sometimes things are what they appear to be. And, and that, was, that was what I, you know, when I found this first heartstone, 
I immediately recognized it as a heart. And I recognized that there were, uh, from just a few minutes of, of looking, I, I spotted eight or nine different anatomical features that, that were consistent with a heart. And as I got the rock back and I started looking through the anatomy books and refreshing my, myself on the real minutia of, of heart anatomy, that was when I started finding more and more. And that shouldn't happen. That goes back to the to the odds thing that I was talking about before. You roll you roll the dice and you roll double sixes. Well, that's one in thirty six odds, okay. But if you roll two, double sixes twice in a row, it's just gotten way bigger. The odds of you doing that. So the odds of finding a stone that has fifteen or twenty or twenty five different anatomical features that match up with, you know, anatomy is it, it shouldn't be possible unless that thing actually is what you what you. Th- think it might be. Uh, so that, that was what happened with, with, um, with this stone. And, oh, I, I remembered the point I lost before when I lost my train of thought, I was talking about experts, uh, being able to discern whether another expert actually makes sense, even though it's not their field. And, and, you know, it's sometimes said that an, being an expert is knowing more and more about less and less until you know absolutely everything about nothing. And, and I think there's some truth to that because people get very myopic in their, in their vision and they don't, they don't, uh, you know, look beyond their little area of expertise. And, and there's such a compartmentalization in academia that you get all these people that it, it's the classic, you know, looking at the elephant and somebody's holding the, the, the leg and thinking it's a tree trunk and somebody's yeah. got the tail, thinks it's a rope and somebody's got the, you know, and, uh, so yeah, we we have to be a lot more disciplined and in our approach to to looking at these things before we make claims about it. Quick parenthesis. So yeah. yeah, quick parenthesis. Since I was talking about the big magnifying glass, an idea just came to mind. Just like a magnifying glass can burn things, I wonder if you used a magnifying glass during a full moon night and measure the temperature on the other side of the of the magnifying glass. If a thermometer would register colder. Temperature. Just, just, just thought about that. But to give a scientific mm. perspective. Oh, can can I add something? Because that's oh, yeah, such sure. an interesting s- subject. Because there's a lot of research that's been done into the moon actually having a cooling light, which makes no no sense in the mainstream model. We're told that that the sunlight is reflecting off of the moon, and then it's coming to us. And if you start to look into the to the inverse square law of light, that makes no sense because of the distance of the moon and the distance of the of the moon to the sun. Ninety three million miles of of light traveling, bouncing off the 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 gray dusty rock that is the moon, and coming all the way back. And on a full moon, you can read read a book by moonlight on a clear night. It, it it's kind of astonishing, really. Well. You would expect that if there was any radiation uh, coming from that light that's coming from the sun, it would be incredibly minute, but maybe there would be some, you know, magical way to, to measure that. But it doesn't radiate. It's not warm at all. It's actually the opposite. It's cooling. And you can prove this by going out on, on a full moon night with a, a thermometer that's accurate to a tenth of a degree. There can be measurement differences between moonlight and moon shade. Yeah. I've seen as much as eight to 10 to 12 degrees difference where it's, it's uh, cooler in the moonlight and it should be the opposite. <laughs> so the, uh, there's a channel uh, called Theoria Apophysis. Uh, Ken Wheeler, he's a, a real master when it comes to things like optics and magnetics and different things. And, and uh, he took a, a FLIR camera, which is an infrared camera, uh, a military-grade high-level technology, and he took it out into his yard on a full moon night. I know this camera personally because a company that I co-founded in Sweden years ago, a tech company, um, we had this camera built into the software that we had created. So it was a measurement uh, technique for chiropractic, for for manual therapists. You could actually use infrared photography to look at the body and see how the body is radiating. And you can actually spot people's pain before they tell you where the pain is because it's radiating more because of the increased metabolic activity. So I was already really familiar with that camera. And this this guy, Ken Wheeler, took this thing out and, and you could see you, you know, it's, it's accurate to a 10th of a degree and you can see because of the, 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 the quality of the resolution of this camera, you can see the whole, whole yard at the same time. And, and it's like a, a fine line between moonlight and moonshade and the moonlight is absolutely cooler. 
And that should not be the case. So that's just another, you know, one of those things that, that we need to look into more and try to understand better. The ancients said that the moonlight was putrefying. So maybe that maybe it's it's absorbing radiant heat and the sun is giving it. That's what Sophia Smallstorm, one of our guests, said uh, many years ago. She said that at night when you, ha- you don't have a UV rays, that's when the cooling effect of the moon, if you have a dead carcass, that's when it putrefies even more during moonlight. But uh, yeah. to give a scientific perspective, what happens to flesh when an organism dies? It, it's consumed by microbes and larvae. But what happens to the same flesh when it's encased in mud in an anaerobic environment? Yeah, eventually it'll turn to stone. And and depending on how long it's been there, uh, will determine how hard the stone is, probably. Um, but... The, and that that gets back to what I was talking about, these different ways in which petrification can occur. So you've got the mud fossil theory, you've got this high mineral content waters, you've also got the concept of melting. You, were, you, you know, you're talking about that with the magnifying glass. Well, we have with volcanoes in the mainstream model of volcanoes, they they talk about pyroclastic flows. This is the eruption of, of the volcano and that the temperatures of those can reach as much as 1500 degrees Celsius and can travel at the speed of sound. So that strikes me as the kind of thing that could, could uh, you know, not just annihilate something, but potentially turn it to stone. So when I was finding these heart stones all over the place, I was so puzzled because why would the organs be found outside of the body? A lot of people ask me the question, like, was there some kind of a great ritual where they remove lots of organs and then somehow turn them to stone? And, and I said, no, that's definitely not the case because what I'm finding is across all scale. I find them from, from millimeters up to, I found them as big as a meter in, in, in size and exhibiting the exact same anatomical features that I've laid out in so many of my videos. And so, you know, I couldn't explain why I was finding them. All I could explain, all I could do was show that I was finding them, that it was an actual phenomenon that wasn't, wasn't being addressed by mainstream geology that, um, was, um, very much um, repeatable, scalable. These are the things you're looking for when you're when you're trying to engage in the in the scientific method. You make an observation, you recognize a pattern, and then you start to see if there is, can it, does this pattern repeat itself? You know what are the rules governing this pattern? And and so that was how I approached it. And I went out live in the field um, in in one of the early videos that I did on the subject, and I found a whole bunch of them. And I started to recognize more and more that there that these features were were reoccurring. And all hearts are different. You know, all species have slightly different shapes to their hearts. Like a, an elephant's heart is big and and like a big blob, and and an, and a giraffe's heart is long and narrow. And, and, but they all have the same identifying characteristics because they have these large blood vessels, the aorta and the vena cava, which go in from the top. They've got, they've got certain curves, they have certain lines, they have twists. And I was finding all of that over and over again in the stones. So, um, that forced me to, to try and theorize why is this happening? And, and I just theorized early on that the outer portion of the body has to be destroyed in some fashion. And as that destruction is taking place, I theorized that the organs themselves were hardening like stone. And, and the reason I believe that they were doing that is because all of the organs of the body are surrounded in a thick fascial sac. So that sac in the heart is the thickest of all of the organs, and it's called the pericardium. And, and so my theory was that because, and, and I think it has to do with either volcanoes or some kind of a plasma event. You know, there's a lot of people talking about the plasma apocalypse. If you want to look at it from a biblical perspective, you, you'd be talking about the glittering sword of God. If you want to talk about myth, you might be talking about something like Medusa. Because what did Medusa or, or what did Perseus do? He cut off Medusa's head and he used that to turn the kraken to stone. What was the kraken? A titan. <laughs> so here he is using an ancient technology, which is Medusa's head, to turn this this giant, you know, this giant the size of a mountain to stone. So 
it's 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 fascinating that that there's you know we have Cthulhu, we have Medusa, there are all these these uh, Hollywood movies. It's it's almost always the exact same kinds of things that are happening over and over again when it comes to the the worldwide destruction. It seems to involve plasma, you know, and and any kind of changes in in major changes in the Earth are going to result in probably a whole lot of volcanic activity and you know who knows what else. So. Um, yeah, so I, those are those are the different uh, the, the different ideas. But the the theory that I came up with was boiled egg theory. And if you think about boiling an egg, you start with a little thin shell, and if you crack that shell open in the beginning, it's all liquid inside, right? But you put it in boiling water for six minutes, and you got a hard boiled egg. You put it in for twelve minutes, and you probably don't even want to eat the egg anymore. Now, what if you take that and you put it in a pressure cooker? Because with a pressure cooker, you've got pressure and you've got heat. Well, a pressure cooker allows us to cook things way, way faster, right? You put in brown rice, normally it takes 35 minutes. You can do it in something like 12 minutes in a pressure cooker. So if you have a mud flood, there's your pressure. The body's in the, you know, but that wouldn't explain why the outer portions of the body would be destroyed. So uh, that's why I leaned more towards something volcanic or something related to high level electrical activity. You know, we have these things called Lichtenberg figures. If you, if you look at the Grand Canyon and you look at a lot of the different scars that are on the earth, you, you've got this, this fractal-like tree-like or, or lung-like pattern. Like roots or, or rivers. Yeah, yeah, like a root structure, exactly. And and that is that can be formed by high-level electricity. In fact, you can find videos online of people making these beautiful dining room tables where they put, right. at, yeah, they put an electrode at one end and an electrode at the other, and they run a bunch of current through it, and it creates that exact same pattern. And the longer you run the current, the darker and the more burned and the more pronounced that pattern becomes. And when you look, you know, I've spent a lot of time looking on Google Earth over the last years. And when you look from above, you see that kind of thing appearing over and over and over again. So I'm far more of the of the mindset now that that it was some kind of a major plasma or electrical apocalyptic kind of an event. And, um, you know, whether this was antediluvian uh, probably because, you know, the, the Titans were, were, uh, you know, I don't know. It's, it, it's, there's so many <laughs> threads going in every direction here, but no, that's okay. I get it. I mean, this is, this is one of those rabbit holes that opens one door and then 10 open behind. But when, when I yeah. started looking into your research about hearts, the first thing that came to mind, but was easily discounted later is the sacrifice. You know, you've heard about, you know, Apocalypse to the movie and the Mayan civilization engaging human sacrifice and, and extracting the heart. But I'm thinking that that, that can't be possible because the heart probably no. would decay rather quickly. But these are thousands and thousands of rocks that are all over the world that look like a heart. The question is, have, we, have you found kidneys? And I think you have because I've seen the videos. Any other, any other organs that are easily identifiable? Yeah. Livers, Hearts, kidneys. I don't find lungs. I think lungs are destroyed in the process because they're so porous. You know, I mean, they, they're designed to fill with air. Yes. Uh, like so I think that they. I think they just melt away. Um, and and I don't find brains. I've only found. I found one half hemisphere of a brain. And it's interesting because in my in my theory. Uh, there there are a number of different tissues that I believe petrify to quartz. So fat. Uh, disc, like in the vertebral discs, uh, ligament, tendon, brain is almost entirely fat. I believe that all of the fat in the body, it, it actually turns to quartz in different ways. But quartz, if you reach, if the temperatures reach, I think it's 2000 degrees, that it will melt. So you actually can have a, a flow of quartz. It's still crystalline, but it's, it's no longer looking like what most people would think of as a quartz crystal. So the um, the pericardium is this outer sac to the heart, and I believe that that is is protecting the heart as it's hardening. And 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 then the question is, well, what about the bones? Because the bones are already hard. That was another puzzling thing that took me a long time to to uh, figure out. You know how that could potentially be be the case, because like the bones are gone. Where are the well. Not all bones, obviously. They find they find fossilized bones all over the world, but in relationship to these hearts, there's no bones to be found anywhere. And and I just I, I understood that 
if if the outer portion is being destroyed of the body to the point where the hearts are turning to stone, then then the the long bones of the body, the arms, the legs, those must just you know disintegrate in some way. But I didn't understand how, and it was a friend of mine who uh, brought up the concept of uh, making bone bone broth to me. Uh, I've I've been a vegetarian my whole life, and I've never had a need to make bone broth, and so I started watching videos on it. And it's really interesting. You can take a, a really thick hunk of bone, put it in a crock pot for about four or five hours, and you don't even have to have it on particularly high heat. And that thing will turn to complete sponge. And, and if you keep going with it, that sponge becomes gelatinous. And, uh, and, and so I, th- I, I think that that is probably what's happened to the, to the remainder of the body is that it's just, it's just slowly being annihilated by whatever it is that, that turned the, the organs to, to stone livers I'm, I'm finding, uh, and, and, and then also I think a, a lot of the stones that, that we find, I've, I've, I've talked about this in a number of the videos. If you think about things like kidney stones and, and gallstones, those can be in, in large numbers in the body, like a, a, a single gallbladder can hold hundreds of gallstones. So my take is if something is already stone at the time of petrification, then it's going to remain stone. And, uh, and that could explain all of these little disc and oval shaped rocks and, and potentially even things like geodes, you know, these, these, these spherical stones that are, that are crystalline in the center. So they could be gallstones from Titans, you mean? No, I'm thinking smaller bodies, but but uh, it's not just titans or regular bodies. You've also got all the different sizes of giants to include, because giants are are very much a real part of history. Uh, a lot a lot of information has been squirreled away by organizations, probably like the Smithsonian, among others. Um, you know, we're fed all these stories that giants is just a a fun fairy tale story. I don't believe that for a second. The amount of evidence in favor of uh, of giants is is massive, and then especially when you you know factor in the the architectural component of that. We have to take a one and only break. Let me just say this before we take the break, and we come back. I'm, I'm going to discuss the Smithsonian. I've been to many, many natural history museums around the world, and of course, there's always a preponderance of dinosaurs. Uh, history books are plagued by them, but nothing. There's absolutely nothing about giants. You are obviously, Mike, experiencing synchronicities, seeing petrified hearts in places you didn't expect, like a church or a restaurant. And also, the big question in my mind is, what caused the petrification and when? I know you don't discuss this that much because you just want to know what is there. Was it a natural event or was it technology that was used to wipe out all the remnants of these beings before the realm was repopulated with a new size of beings? Literally, the size of ants in comparison to what used to be here. Like in the movie, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. The creation of fossils also in such a short period of time with the right conditions. All of this and much more when we return. How can people learn more about your work, Mike? And also, if you want to mention the book that's coming up soon, which we'll have you back to discuss. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the channel is, is, is the best way to find the research because that's the only place I put it, which is Stellium7, S-T-E-L-L-I-U-M, as in Mike, and then the number seven without a space. That's the YouTube channel. There's lots of videos on there. Um, you know, go to the playlists and you can you can see how it's been sorted out. Um, and uh, I have a mailing list for people who are interested in the book. It's on uh, Mailer Light. I'll, I'll provide you with a link that you can give in the in the show notes if people want to sign up. The book is hopefully going to be out in the next uh, couple months. I was shooting for December for Christmas, but it's it's not going to happen in time. The book is called. The Hacker Prince, a true story, and it's you know about the the stuff we talked about at the beginning of this episode. Excellent. Well, folks, we have one more hour to with Mike Wilkerson. This is Mel Hustlerick, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at VeritasRadio.com. Subscribe today. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy. Get a 15-day free trial of FLFE today. We also have rebounders, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Veritas and Sanitas seasons, and other great products. 
And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share the video. Click on the notification button to be alerted when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know.